Let's open in our Bibles to Luke chapter 7. We're going to read today a longer interaction of Jesus and the sinful woman. And this is far and away one of my favorite stories in the Bible. I love this, and it will become immediately apparent why that is um, as we read this story and hear from God's Word together. So let's turn in our Bibles to Luke chapter 7, and I'm going to start reading in verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster, alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering him said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When, he, when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom was canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. Then he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Then those who were at the table with him began saying among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Let's pray together. What a remarkable story. Jesus, that you invite us into this scene to see once again the power of your gospel, to cause us to marvel, to cause us to delight. Lord, open our ears, open our hearts. Let us hear from you this morning. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. I love this story that Jesus interacts at Simon's house with this woman because uh, we began by saying earlier in our series that Jesus And his disciples were constantly eating and drinking. I mean, they were doing that all the time. So much so that immediately prior to this passage in verses 33 and 30 through 35, Jesus has just got done saying, look, I'm being accused all the time of being a glutton and a drunkard. He eats and drinks so many times in so many places that people are starting to say, look, this Jesus guy, all he does is party. He's a glutton. He's a drunkard. The very next verse A Pharisee named Simon invites Jesus to his house for food and drink. Now, Jesus could have said to him, you know, I would love to, but this is a bad time. I'm getting a lot of flack right now in my ministry for doing this too much. Jesus doesn't say that. He says, don't mind if I do. That sounds great. What are we having? I love how little time and attention Jesus gives to defending his own reputation. How little he spends guarding what other people think about him. That is so unlike me. That is so foreign to me to watch one who finds his full and complete identity in his father. It doesn't matter what people are saying about him at this point. 
And so because of that, people just get drawn to Jesus. They're like moths coming out of darkness into the light, just, just drawn to him, to his person and what he says to them. So it's no surprise that as soon as Jesus shows up to Simon's house, as soon as he sits and begins to have this meal, that this uninvited woman comes into the house and approaches Jesus. Now, we hardly know anything about this woman. We don't even know her name. Verse 37 says she's a woman of the city who was a sinner. So at this point in the story, the only thing that defines this woman is that she's a sinner. She sins a lot. And we don't know what that is. Some people speculate that she's a prostitute or that she's a flagrant adulterer. Some way in which everybody in that room knew who this woman was and knew that she was a sinner. But we don't know. Well, here's how I imagine her thinking is going when she comes into Simon's house. She knows that she is vile to the core. She knows she's a sinner. She doesn't need to be told that. She doesn't need the looks of scorn that she's about to get. She knows that. She knows that she doesn't belong in a synagogue or certainly not in a gathering of Pharisees and other righteous people. She knows that. But she has heard about Jesus. And she hears that he is is here tonight and she chooses to believe at this point that if she can get to Jesus, he may be the one who can connect her to God. She believes that. And so here's her plan. She's going to go to a house that she's not invited to. She's going to slip past the servants. She's going to get into that room with Jesus and approach him. And she's going to anoint his head with oil, expensive oil. And after that, it's completely up to him. She has no further plan. That's what she's going to do and place herself in the hands of Jesus. Well, the scene begins to unfold. Jesus comes in. He reclines at the table. Of course, in Jesus' day, you don't have chairs. You lean on a pillow at a low table, and your feet are spread behind you. And the woman comes in unannounced behind Jesus and stands behind him at the ready, and everything begins to unravel. The woman, when she gets there, is completely undone. She begins to weep uncontrollably as she stands behind Jesus. What is making her cry at this point? Why is she weeping? Is it because of the scorn of everybody in that room who is looking at her? Or does she get a glimpse of Jesus and does he give her a tender look? Or is she feeling so ridiculous to think that this was ever a good idea, that she ever should have come into the home of a Pharisee? Or was there a flicker of hope at this moment that she might actually be forgiven? All we know is that she is weeping so fully and so uncontrollably that as her tears fall, they begin to wet Jesus' feet that are behind him. Here stands a woman who is utterly transparent before Jesus without an ounce of pretense. She is done making excuses for her sin. She is done with a cheap kind of confession of sin that comes so easily off the lips but doesn't touch her heart. She's done making herself out to be the victim that says the reason her life has gone this way and that way and she's done these things is because of stuff that's happened to her. She's done with that. She's done and she's undone before Jesus. She comes before him transparently confessing her sin. Well, things just go from bad to worse in this scene because seeing that Jesus' feet are getting wet from her tears, she kneels down and she undoes her hair, which is a major cultural no-no, 
and she begins wiping her, his feet. Now, if you were a friend of this woman, you'd be thinking, please, don't do that. Don't, don't undo your hair in front of these men. Don't wipe his feet. That's, this is not good. But things go from bad to worse because she's crying. She's wiping his feet. She's crying, and she begins kissing the feet of another man. And that's a double cultural no-no. You should not be doing this between a man and a woman in first century Israel. And she's wiping his feet. And then, because the train has completely left the track, because the plan has gone out of the window, she has made a mess of herself, a mess of Jesus' feet, because she can't get past his feet to his face, she just opens up the ointment and anoints his feet with oil. Now, I don't think this has ever, ever been done before, and people at the table are thinking, did she just anoint his feet with oil? What is she doing? I mean, this woman is undone, her plan is gone, and she is bare before Jesus. Simon, the host, the Pharisee who's invited Jesus, is beat red at this point. He is annoyed, he is disgusted, and he begins to think to himself, if Jesus were a prophet, which he is not, he would have known who this woman was, which he doesn't, and would never have allowed this. Jesus wouldn't let something like this happen. Well, Jesus responds with a beautiful parable that we're going to get to, but I cannot leave this woman hanging Because in verse 48, Jesus receives her sloppy and sorrowful repentance for sin and says to her, your sins are forgiven. You see that? Like a money lender forgiving a massive debt, Jesus takes this world of sin from this woman and says it's forgiven. I'm going to take this sin on myself. I'm going to take it to the cross and I'm going to pay the penalty for your sin. As far as you are concerned, it's gone. It's forgiven. It is lifted from you. This woman came as an unnamed sinner, and she stands to leave this house tonight as a named daughter of the living God. I love the assurance of forgiveness we read today from Psalm 103. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. That is the gospel. That is the grace of God. Your sins are forgiven. But that is not the only voice that the woman hears in the room. I wish it were. I wish it were this way for us. I wish we could hear Jesus say something one time and we believed him to our grave. But down the table from all this, in verse 49, there's some muttering happening. Simon's guests are saying, who is this who even forgives sins? They're incredulous. They don't believe what Jesus is saying to this woman, and they're voicing that muttering. And the woman can hear this. Jesus says to the woman, your sins are forgiven. The dinner guests say, no, that can't be true. The shepherd's voice says to the woman, as far as the east is from the west, your sins are gone. The stranger's voice says, that can't possibly be true, or at least it can't be true for you. It's too good to be true. That's not fair. That's not the way the world works. And who is Jesus anyway? And how can you know that he really takes your sin from you? There's these competing voices in the room that the woman hears, and this dynamic is not lost on Jesus. In verse 50, he grabs a hold of this woman who he's already told your sins are forgiven, and he says, look at me. Look me in the eyes. My voice is the only one you need to hear tonight. 
Let the snickering, let the doubts, let the criticism, let the scoffering roll off your back right now and listen to what I tell you. If you believe me, your sins are forgiven, your faith has saved you, go in peace. That's the shepherd's voice. That is the shepherd speaking to this woman. And what I can't stand about Luke is he cannot spare an extra word in his gospel to tell us what the woman does when she hears this. I mean, he can't spare another verse here to tell us what goes on. This woman, to ask for forgiveness of sin, has made a wreck of herself. She's wept, she's kissed, she's broken open ointment. That's to ask for forgiveness. What happens when she receives forgiveness from Jesus? Maybe I've been watching the Olympics too much, but I, triple some, I, I, I picture something like a triple sow cow here where she is just dancing out of this room and down the road to think that she has come and received this weight of forgiveness off of her. Forgiven people do crazy things. Forgiven people who have received the love of Jesus, they love much. And that's precisely the point that Jesus wants to make for us in the parable that we're going to look at. In response to this kind of disgust that Simon has with a woman and with Jesus receiving her, he tells Simon a little story. He says this, look, there's a, there's a money lender who has two debtors. There's one who owes the money lender 500 denarii. Now, we know that a denarii is a day's wage, and so this adds up to roughly a year and a half's salary that is indebted to the money lender. So our medical students in the room, they're tracking with us right now. They're saying, yes, I understand this imagery. Well, then there's this other guy who owes 50 denarii. He owes a tenth of what the first guy does, or about a month and a half salary. And neither of them can repay the money lender. And the money lender says, look, I'm going to forgive you both of those debts. So who's going to be more excited? Who's going to love the money lender more? Simon, I think he kind of senses the trap here in verse 43, says... The one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. He's correct. Jesus says, yeah, that's exactly right. And he's going to use that to paint two opposite portraits for us. Now, friends, there are two questions we need to ask this passage. Two questions about these verses that Jesus is going to use to shape our Christian lives to the core. And the first one is this. He's introduced us to two debtors. He said there's a 50 denarii debtor and a 500 denarii debtor. And the first question we need to ask our Bibles this morning is, is there really such thing as a 50 denarii debtor? Is there such thing as a person who only owes a month and a half's salary to Jesus? Are there some people in this world like Simon the Pharisee that are so good, so compliant, such rule followers, those who have grown up in the church, those who have always read their Bibles, those who obey so well they can remember what they were wearing the last time they were spanked? They never really had a rebellious streak in high school or college. They never dabbled in drugs or alcohol or pornography or adultery. More out of fear than anything else, they are so obedient and so good that when they finally come to Jesus, it's like Jesus only has to forgive them 50 denarii. It's like their debt to Jesus is so small, it's just, it's just a little loan on a month and a half salary. Are there some people like this women who, who, who are dead in their sin? And some people like Simon who are just fatigued in their sin and they just need a little boost. 
No, 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 a thousand times no. There is no such thing as a 50 denarii debtor. As Romans 3 will say, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one person. Paul is saying, whether you grew up in a Jewish household and cut your teeth on the Torah, or you grew up in a Gentile house that celebrated licentiousness, all are guilty, all stand condemned before the living God. There are only two kinds of people in this world. There are those who know that they have a great debt before the living God, and there are those who don't. There are those who know that they are sick to the core and they need a physician in Jesus And there are those who don't. There is no such thing as a 50 denarii debtor. If you've been found by Christ, if you've been saved by him, if you've been delivered by him, he has taken away a world of sin and shame from all of us. So that leads us to a second question. If we're that hard on the person who's the 50 denarii debtor, who would fess up to that? I mean, if we're sitting around in our life groups and we pop the question, are you a 50 or a 500 kind of person, who's going to say the 50? We just beat up on that idea and we just said from Romans chapter 3, there's no such thing as that. So who would honestly own up to that? Well, friends, our hearts are deceptively wicked. They trick us. They, they make us think false things about our spirituality. So our second question must be, how do we know that our hearts are being truthful? How do we know if we are a believer in Christ, that we own the 500 denarii debt? How do we know that we have fully seen the sin in our hearts and received the grace of God for that? How do we know? Jesus holds up Simon and the woman and shows us four marks of a Christian who understands the large debt that's been forgiven. I'm going to fly through these, but there's four of them. Number one, a forgiven debtor serves. Verse 44, He says to Simon, I entered your house, you gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. Now, Simon's not being a rude host, he's just doing the bare minimum. He's doing what would be expected of him at that day, because a small debtor keeps track of service. You know that kind of person, they kind of eye up who's around them and who's done what and who hasn't contributed, and and they know what's being owed to what person. That's a small debtor. That's a person with a small view of their sin. A large debtor is free to serve largely. They're free to serve at their own expense. They're, They're free to do whatever it takes. They have stopped keeping track of who's done what because they have learned that Jesus has thrown out the track. He has not kept a record of their sin, and they are free to serve at their own expense. A a forgiven debtor serves. Number two, a forgiven debtor delights. Verse 45, he says, you gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. This woman is so enamored with Jesus, she never gets past his feet. A small debtor is casually happy. He's okay. He's, He's casually happy, but a large debtor exudes joy. They've experienced the free forgiveness of God. Number three, a forgiven debtor honors, verse 46. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. The larger the debt of sin we understand we've been forgiven, the larger the figure of Jesus looms before us. 
a small debtor worships a small Jesus. What need do you have for him? He just gave you a boost. You were fatigued, you were good, and he just kind of came alongside of you and brushed the dirt off your knees. That's a, that's a small debtor, and they have a small Jesus. For a large debtor, a large Jesus looms before them. You can see that person belting out worship songs off key in the front row. You can see that person opening up their wallet to give generously. You can see that person doing what needs to be done to serve. You can see that person laying out their life before Jesus because he looms so large and so beautifully before them that their life is to honor him. A large debtor honors Jesus. And number four, and this is implied throughout, a forgiven debtor doesn't judge. You can taste Simon's scorn. He's a self-righteous person who has heaped judgment on this woman. He hates her. He's disgusted by her. She's a sinner, and he wants nothing to do with her. And you know what's interesting? He surrounds himself with like-minded people. You heard the folks at his dinner table. You heard the kinds of people that he invites to his house for dinner. It's the kind of people that would do the same thing that he would do. That they would look at this woman and say, her sins can't be forgiven. Self-righteous, judgmental Christians just kind of gravitate towards each other. And they flock together and they join together. And they, they use their numbers to scoff at other people. To use us and them language. To look down. To be surprised when somebody confesses a sin that they think, I could never, ever do something like that. A forgiven debtor, they don't judge. They have no ground to stand on. The woman is being honored in the midst of a group of people who have scorned her her entire life. I mean, talk about an opportunity to rub this in her face. She's being lifted up before Simon. She could say, take that, Simon. You have always looked down on me. You have never given me any kind of respect. And Jesus is honoring me in your midst. Take that. But that's the furthest thing from this woman's mind. Her eyes are on Jesus. Putting others down is cheap. Jesus' honor is rich, and she has chosen what she wants today, the honor of Jesus. Well, you can sum up all four of these marks the way that Jesus does when he says that a forgiven debtor loves. That's what a forgiven debtor does. Verse 42, which debtor will love more? It's the debtor who has been forgiven the most, the large debtor. Friends, this gospel that Jesus is talking about today, this is This is great, and this is wonderful news for our neighbors. For those who do not know Jesus, this gospel, like it is for this woman tonight, is the power of God for the salvation of everybody who believes. But do you know what? This gospel is great and wonderful news for those of us who are in Christ. This passage is an invitation for you and I who have trusted in Jesus to press in more deeply into the debt that Jesus has forgiven us, to understand the magnitude of the sin that we have committed against the living God, and to understand all the more the love that Jesus has for us. Jesus uses this forgiveness to transform us into large debtor lovers who are free to serve and honor and rejoice and worship and withhold judgment because we understand what Jesus has done on our behalf. Let's pray together.
Lord, I pray that you would show us more and more the large debt that we've been forgiven. I pray that that would let us taste and see that you are good, to revel in your gospel, to understand that you have taken away the great debt and that we can serve and love freely. Lord, those who have been forgiven much, love much. And I pray that you would do that in our midst. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.